Welcome to the Women's Leadership Network podcast series. This series was created as a means to encourage, inspire, and empower women who want to make their lives better. I would tell my 1L self on the first day of school that there's a lot for me out there that I don't even yet know about. You meet someone who reminds you that it's important to stay the course, not only for yourself, but for them and for all the people that we're trying to help. We look for current issues and challenges facing women in the legal world and offer ways of tackling these issues, as well as provide a community of support and engagement. I'm Jeannie Forrest, one of your vice deans here at NYU School of Law. I have two guests with me here today. Alina Doss, Associate Professor of Clinical Law and Co-Director of the NYU School of Law's Clinical Immigrant Rights Clinic, and Claudia Carvajal-Lopez. Alina actually went to our school, graduated in 2005, and Claudia is the class of 2018. That makes you a 2L. I am a 2L, yeah. I'm so relieved that you're not a 3L. (laughs) That would really make me feel old. Welcome to both of you. Thank you for having us. Um, Coming in to talk. We'd like to start this with, first of all, telling, telling us about your experience in law school. You have a little bit of a different experience because you're in the middle of it, Claudia, and you're a couple years out, as we like to say. (laughs) Just a couple years out. Um, Do you want to start, Alina? What was your experience in law school? Sure. So I went to law school. um, I started in 2001, actually, and I guess it was both an incredible time for me to start in law school. I was really excited about coming here to NYU. I wanted to be a social justice lawyer and knew what a great reputation NYU had. But of course, the most uh, troubling thing about starting that year is I moved to New York, and within a couple of weeks, it was September 11th, and that was a horrible, terrible day. Um, So much tragic lives changing in just, you know, a few instants. And uh, it was it was a horrible thing to live through Uh, an incredible community here at NYU. And ultimately, the aftermath of that of seeing the backlash against immigrants is partially what launched me into this work. Uh, Daughter of immigrants, I was always interested in it, um, and interested in civil rights work generally, but my commitment really started because of that experience. And so a lot of of living in in this post 9-11 world at NYU and getting my legal education through that lens is part of what shaped my law school experience. But I certainly wasn't disappointed in the public interest community. I think every every amazing thing I heard about the students here, um, the faculty, the clinical programs, it was all very much true. And so I'm very grateful for the experience I had when I was a student here. I remember as an administrator being here during that exact experience and thinking that this is a reason to be invested in the rule of law. This was the time when the social architects of this country were going to be more important than ever and that right here in the village was a source for everything good that could possibly happen even as the most disaster, the most dramatic, surreal thing that I ever had seen, witnessed, and could imagine was going on. I stood on the sidewalk and watched that second building fall and couldn't believe it was happening, so I was with you. 
was yeah. pretty radical. I mean, we may have been right there together and not even realized it. I I was coming out of my first year um, criminal law class standing on McDougal Street um, when I saw the t second tower fall and standing there with my classmates, not knowing what this world was coming to, I think was really hard. And you're right, we were we were definitely tested in the, the months and the years after that. You know, this country and, and what we stood for was really tested. And in some ways, we failed that test in, in a couple of really big ways. Um, and then we spent a lot of time trying to build our way out of it. And now I think we're back in a spot where we're being tested once again. I didn't realize that, that you were just starting law school that year. Yeah, it was, it was, I was moving to New York for the first time. Everything uh, about being here was really a first. And uh, this was clearly, uh, I think, a very traumatizing experience for a lot of people. And both just that day, walking around the city. I think we didn't, no one knew what was happening. And I know a bunch of students, we went up to the closest hospital we could find to give blood because we thought that would matter and, and it didn't. And then in the days and weeks after that, um, seeing the, the way people reacted, you know, I'm a South Asian woman, uh, brown skin, dark skinned. I didn't always feel safe or welcomed walking around, even in a place like New York City because of what happened here and because the reaction it was so raw. And I, I understood that to some extent, but when those kinds of immediate feelings started turning into actions and policies, we saw the first version of a Muslim registry happen. I saw men who looked like my father or my brother have to line up around federal buildings to kind of report themselves. I think that fundamentally changed me. It really channeled me towards doing immigrant rights work and, and is the reason that I applied for and, um, and chose to be in the Immigrant Rights Clinic, which is now the clinic that I co-teach. It steals your resolve. Yeah. I mean, that's the only way I think any of us can react when terrible things happen is to figure a way to fight through them and to hope that something better will come out of it in the end. Uh, you know, coming to New York for law school was, was really the first time um, that I, you know, came here and settled down here. Um, and, uh, and of course, now I consider New York home. Claudia, what about you? Um, so like Alina, I moved to New York for law school. I had spent a few days here before um, once I was already accepted to NYU, I came for an admitted students uh, week and had spent some time here, but I was very nervous about moving here. I was very nervous about moving away from my family, who is back in California in the Bay Area. I am the oldest daughter and the only daughter. I have two younger brothers. One is six years younger and the other one is 18 years younger. My mom doesn't really speak English and my dad speaks it a little bit and he manages his own business which I have always been a huge huge part of I helped um, him and I found that business founded that business when I was 15 so I have I had always been a very big part of my household I went to Berkeley as an undergrad I lived I was only there for two years I was a transfer student from a community college and so I lived on campus, but every weekend I was taking BART, which is the public transit system there back home, 
and there was always stacks of envelopes for the week's mail for me to kind of open and sort through and figure out what was happening and pay the bills and send whatever needed to be sent out. So moving so far away from them was scary. It was scary and it was also, it it provoked some guilt in me. I felt like I knew that in the long term it was what was best for us as as a unit, but it also made me feel like I was abandoning them in some way. And so moving to New York, I think, was an exciting experience, but it was also a very emotional experience for me. And then I got here and I loved it. Um, I loved being back in school. I had spent three years out working as a paralegal at at an immigration law firm in Oakland. And I really enjoyed being back in the classroom. I enjoyed learning things for the sake of learning them for no other reason but to just learn them and apply them and so I loved my 1L I I was a big fan I ended 1L and was very very excited for 2L and for all the great things happening around me and then 2L started and I was even more excited for my classes because for the first time in a very long time I had the opportunity to pick my own classes they weren't just handed to me and I and then the election happened and November came around and those feelings kind of came back so I think those feelings of being responsible for your family the feel I yes I mean you I felt responsible throughout 1L but I think the feelings of feeling guilty for not being at home um they came back and so it was very hard to be here and it was very hard to kind of not just like take everything and go back home um but I think as Lena pointed out I think that being at NYU Law and the response of the community and the support and the way that the people around me responded to it really made me realize that I was in the right place, um, that I could still help in a lot of ways from far away, and I could still provide some sort of guidance and support to them despite not being there, and that I was in the right place, that this school really the community response and the way that everyone just kind of rallied together said a lot about the school and about my classmates and about the administrators and my professors. So despite it being very, very difficult, I think that the aftermath of that is what really showed me more than ever that I made the right choice in being here. There's something really powerful about being a translator for your family And there's also really something powerful about being the multiplier effect of being a translator and being a force for good for multiple families and knowing that you're going to be a force for good for many, many people if you can be here. It sounds like that that's not only, um, you won't only be a force for good um, for your own family if you can finish this degree and tough this out. Yes, I mean, always keeping the broader picture and 
kind of more of the long run in mind and not just focusing on what's happening specifically right now. It really keeps me motivated to keep going because I know that once I finish and I have my degree, it puts me in a position of great power in this country that is not that not enough women of color have. And so being an attorney, I think, comes with great power and great privilege and also a great responsibility. And so I'm excited to be to contribute to the numbers changing and to being a woman of color who is also an attorney and who can use the skills that I've learned here to use how I find them appropriate in my community is something that excites me and that really keeps me going. That resonates with you too, I have a feeling. Well, I have to say, you know, I first met Claudia, I guess it was last year when, you know, Claudia is a leader in the Latino Law Students Association. And she and, and others from the group had approached me about an event that they were putting on about uh, deferred action for childhood arrivals and, and policy changes are happening in the courts. And of course, all of this was planned uh, before the election. I think it took place, I don't know, a couple of weeks before it was maybe. In October. Yeah, so none of us had any idea what was coming. But, but I say all of that just to say that, you know, Claudia, you know, so impressed me when I first met her and then continued throughout everything that's happened since uh, to just be such an incredible example of what women, in, in particular women of color at this law school, can do and have done before they even get their law degrees. So, you know, <laughs> when Claudia's out there with her law degree, she will be a force to be reckoned with because she's been such an amazing leader at the school and, and in the community. And I think that's really true of a lot of the, the women that I've had the pleasure of teaching here. You know, well, even going back further, the, the women I had the pleasure of going to school here with and graduating with and seeing go on to be these amazing leaders. And now as a professor here, you know, each year I, I meet a new group of students who are so incredibly passionate, who care about their communities for women, women of color, who really know where they come from. Um, and I think that's an incredibly important thing. One of the things that I think that women of color have uniquely in this country is they do have a sense of roots. I think that um, immigrant women have a sense of roots and connectedness to family. And you're describing that in a really powerful way. Yes. My experience has been one where I know that I would not be here today if it weren't for my parents, if it weren't for the work that as a family we've done. So I've never thought of myself as being separate from my family, as being an individual. Uh, first and foremost, I think of myself as a member of my family. And in my case, my parents don't have retirement savings. They're kind of, they're working day to day to provide what we needed that day. And, you know, my, I wasn't able to get financial aid at Berkeley because of my immigration status. And, you know, my, my dad sold everything he had to pay my tuition at the end of every semester, which was not a small amount. I, I received in-state tuition because of California regulations, but 
it was not a small amount. It was a, I mean, for us, it was a small fortune. And so those kinds of sacrifices has meant that my parents don't have anything to fall back on. I am their safety net and I understand that. And, and so I've never, I've never thought of myself as disconnected from my family. I've always, I've always thought of myself as a member of that unit and as a member of the larger unit, which is my community. And so I, I think you're right in saying that a lot of the times, and I, I think it's a, maybe a cultural thing, a lot of the time among immigrant populations, we are very family oriented. It's one of the challenges I remember um, when I was in graduate school, one of my rotations, the challenges that immigrant women had was that they didn't experience the um, sense of individuality that American women who had been here for generations had. They didn't have that sense of independence, the me first kind of phenomenon that the immigrant women had. They didn't have a sense of that collective. The American women had a sense of uh, independence and this isn't good for me. And the immigrant women had a sense of collective. They, they thought in the sense of we and a sense of us. And it made it really interesting for them because they put the family first and they tended to sacrifice the self. And it made a very different conversation when it came to psychotherapy. Um, and I think it makes a difference from all kinds of perspectives. It calls into question that kind of interesting work-life balance that always comes up when we talk about women and women's issues. I'm not sure if I even believe in work-life balance. I think it may actually be chapters in our lives instead of work-life balance on a daily basis. What do you think of the issue of work-life balance, Alina? You've got, uh, <laughs> you've, you've got motherhood in your life. Well, it is hard. And I, and I would say, first off, that, you know, while it's very true, I, mean, I think part of the reason the immigrant experience is so unique is if you think about what our, um, what immigrants, and in, in my case, my parents, have been through, the choices that they've made to, you know, literally uproot themselves from one community, you know, one culture, and, you know, move into a completely different space. Uh, my parents came here over 40 years ago now, um, when the some of the restrictions on Asian immigration were lifted, and my dad came here on a student visa, and my mom came over when he had his green card, and they ended up settling here, but they had no idea at the time how things would turn out, the choices that they would make, where they would be. And so you see this sense of creating your own unit, your structure, to, to really sticking with your family and protecting them. But I think it's also true that you see independence. When I think about my mom and what the choices that she made, things that she's done, I mean, that is, to me, I think, an, first and foremost, now along with my daughter, you know, the strongest woman that I know, the most independent, the person who is really a leader in her community, who really has taught me what it means to, to both put your family first, but to stand up for yourself and stand up for what you think is right. And now that I'm a mother and I have a, a little girl at home, you know, that's what I think of. What is the example that I'm going to present to her? And, you know, it's been hard. I think, you know, over the last few months, you know, Im immigrant rights work has always been really tough. And the, the people that my students represent have always been targets for pretty harsh immigration enforcement. 
but things have felt different the last few months. They've expanded. The, the reach has expanded. So, you know, there have been times where I've had to stay later than I wanted to at work. Even the, the weekend after President Trump uh, announced the first Muslim ban, and I got a call about somebody who was stuck at the airport, and I left. I remember changing. I was in my gym clothes, and I, I changed into a suit, not knowing exactly how a suit would be helpful at the airport, but I thought I was going as a lawyer, and I wanted to be prepared. And to see my little girl look really confused about why mommy was getting into her work clothes unexpectedly on the weekend, and then I, not knowing at the time that I would spend the entire weekend at the airport and coming home, and then that next morning when I went to work, seeing her, her cry in a way that she hadn't since she you know, was very, very little, and realizing that she recognizes that she feels the burden of what it means to do this work and to face these challenges. That, that was really hard for me, and what I felt was really hard for her too. So the only thing I can say, and a, a good friend of mine said this to me about his kids, um, he's a man of color doing incredible work um, around uh, criminal justice issues and has two little kids at home too, that you know, all you can tell your children is that you're trying to make the world a better place for them and then hope in the scheme of things everything will balance out and that that love and desire to be there for your kids and your family, putting your family first while also trying to put your work first and your clients first and your students first. There's only so many first positions to go around. Some would say there's only one first position to go around, but somehow, I don't know, we all manage to try and, and do that. And I think that's what makes women and mothers in particular so extraordinary because you do it because you have to and it's never perfect but somehow it it tends to work out we do it because we have big stretchy hearts that's right when you anticipate the future when you think about this what's your sense of this claudia do you feel kind of exhausted when you think about it do you feel inspired i feel I actually feel very hopeful and very inspired I think that we had reached a point where we were all kind of we the conversations were usually like oh things are things are better than they were before and so politically you know there's things are better and so I think a lot of people had kind of just hadn't really because the abuses in the system and because of the discrimination and the unfairness was not so glaring, people had become complacent. And I really think that the political climate has really stirred up a lot of people who had not necessarily been active before. And so, and I, I know that even my own personal experience I was very comfortable. I had just started law school. I had, I have a job after law school. Um, my brothers are doing great. My brothers grad. One of my brothers is graduating from college this year. The other ones, you know, starting third grade. And so, everything just seemed like it was going to be fine, and things were fine. And so, I think that this really 
that the political climate now really shook me up in a way that is really exciting. I think that it has really unleashed a power that was not necessarily there before. I mean, it's always been there, but I I feel like it really stirred things up in a very powerful way. And so I think especially women are taking a really big part in fighting back and in realizing that there's injustice everywhere and that it's up to us, that we can't just kind of take a back seat and allow things to unfold, that it really is up to us to take a stand. And so that really inspires me (coughs) and it makes me hopeful. I think my initial reaction was fearful and I think that that as time has gone on, And as I've been able to kind of just gather myself and my thoughts and I've seen the response of those around me, it's turned into a hopefulness that change is coming and that a very big change is coming. I'd like to think that the future is bright, that it's just going to take a lot of work. And I'm really inspired to be part of that work. You're already practicing. I mean, you're doing this managing law review and going to class and you're still juggling your family. Yes, I find that I am happiest when I am busiest and when I feel most connected to the things that I am doing. I think that being, I feel like it's a privilege to even just be here. And so having the privilege to have to juggle classes And being on Law Review and having a say in what gets published and what kind of articles get attention is, I mean, they're great things to juggle. And I feel very fortunate for it. So I think at the end of the day, even though it takes a lot of work and a lot of time management skills, and as Alina said, not everything can be number one, but you try as hard as you can and it's not perfect. But It feels like a privilege to be doing the things that I'm doing because I know that a lot of people who very much deserve to be here and who can be here, they're not for whatever reasons, for life circumstances. And so I feel very grateful for the things that I have to juggle. You are definitely having your say. (laughs) What have you learned from each other? So, you know, when I see someone like Claudia who... (laughs) you know, as a leader at school, who again, I I learned about, I met through her leadership activities. And then when I come to know of all the things that are going on in her life and all the amazing work she's doing, it just gives me so much hope for the legal profession. I mean, I think about the way that women of color have always been doing the hard work in this country and will continue to, but have struggle to get the credit that they deserve for the work and the leadership positions and the ability to make those changes, the power. And I see someone like Claudia and I'm like, we'll be okay because she's the future of the the movement in, in this country and, and globally, the impact that we'll have. And so I really learned to have hope that even during very troubled times that we're going to see progression in the movement and that we'll see a better world, you know, for my children, because people like Claudia will be leading it. Thank you, Alina. Um, meeting Alina, I think, if for me, has 
really changed my experience in law school. I've loved law school, but there haven't been, I mean, I can count on one hand the number of women of color that I've met who are in leadership positions at the law school and in the field as a whole. And so for me, meeting Alina and knowing that she does all these amazing things for our communities, while at the same time pays such individual attention to the people in her life. After the election, Alina reached out to me personally, and I wasn't expecting that, and it made such a difference. And so... And I, every time that I feel I, that I've felt like I needed strength, I've reached out to Alina and I said, you know, Alina, I'm doing this speech. Like, what do you think of it? And she came. And so I learned from Alina that it is possible to be a leader in this field and to be a woman of color and to still maintain personal connections mm-hmm. with the people around you. And that makes me very excited for my future. The things that Alina, the work, the incredible work, and the changes that Alina does for our communities is very, very inspiring. And in fact, in a lot of ways, I think has made me reevaluate my own course and the things that I'm doing. And to me, the people that I've met along the path who make me reevaluate my path are I am the most grateful to them so I'm very grateful for having met Alina and she has really made a difference in my path and in the way that I think about things that's very sweet but I must say I mean so to see you do all of the amazing work that you do as a law student period just in terms of school your leadership in the community, putting on events, you know, supporting your family, doing all of that. But then on top of that, during the most difficult times that we've faced in this country in a very long time, for you to stand up out loud and speak truth has inspired so many other people in our community, people who didn't feel like they could do that, that they didn't feel like they had a voice. You know, I've watched you speak to you know, rooms full of people whose eyes were literally opened up to a lot of the things that young women of color in this country are going through right now. Seeing you stand in the fountain at Washington Square Park and speak your truth there to hundreds of people who are gathered. I mean, that's the kind of leadership that we need in this country. So you're the kind of leader that I think, you know, will be taking us you know, to the next level. And I'm just so thankful that I get the chance to know you while you're here at the law school. Mm -hmm. You're talking about an aspect of of your life, Claudia, that um, we didn't necessarily document here. Um, Speaking of documented, was it the night before the election that you got your paperwork, you you got your legal status complete? No, it was not. You actually, in front of an audience, told your story about your undocumented status. Is that accurate? That is correct. So I have, I I mean, we came here and we came here without documentation. 
You was a family. Yes. And so I grew up undocumented without knowing what that really meant Mm -hmm. until I was in high school. And I wasn't able to get a driver's license and I wasn't able to get my first job and things like that. And I, I didn't understand why I couldn't. And so I began to research and I began to ask a lot of questions and and I realized what that meant for me. Before that, I understood that we were here and I understood that I couldn't leave, but I didn't really know why. And so I really, I, I, I hit a point in my life where I lost a lot of motivation my mom was dropping me off in high school at the morning every morning and I was getting out of the car and walking into school and immediately walking out of school I was not going to classes I was just kind of I felt very hopeless and I didn't see a future I at that point I was told I couldn't go to college by my high school counselor because of my because of my status so I felt very much destined to a very particular life and so I didn't see a way out and so then while I was in high school my dad lost his job and so that stability that we had you know he worked very hard and he had bought his own home and it was our home and we were fine we were doing fine and so we were doing fine financially and so when he lost his job And there was really, for him, I saw that same feelings that I felt, that there was no way out, there was nothing we can do, and I saw it in him. I really felt like I had to do something. And the summer after high school graduation, I barely graduated, I really made a choice that no matter what happened, I was going to be prepared. And what that meant, if it meant that I would have to go back to Mexico or if that meant that some change was going to happen in the law that summer was the uh, summer of 07 and there was all this talk about immigration reform and I was following very closely what was happening in Congress. It ultimately died that summer, but it still gave me some hope that the conversation is happening And people are aware that we're here and people are aware that we have no way out unless something changes. So I made it, I made a choice that I was going to set up, I was going to line my ducks up and hope for the best. And so I enrolled in community college and I actually applied myself and I would go to class and I did my work. After a few years, I transferred to Berkeley and I graduated. And even on my graduate in May of 2012, there was nothing I could do with my degree at that point. I continued working with my dad in our own business and because that's all I could really do. And when President Obama made the announcement in June of 2012, I knew that it wasn't anything permanent, but it helped me in the sense that it solidify that as long as I kept lining things up and I kept doing what I could do on my end that something was bound to happen and so I got my work permit and I started working as a paralegal and I mean this whole time knowing I started law school under DACA while I was still a deferred action student under DACA I knew that it was nothing permanent and it could be taken away from me at any moment 
just the same way that it was given to me uh, by President Obama in, in June of 2012, it could very well just be revoked at any moment. But I was hopeful that things would change at the same time. In I also, about two years ago at this point, I uh, filed permanent residency application through a different path. And when the election happened, that application was still pending and it had been pending for a few years. And so I wasn't sure what was happening and I wasn't sure where it was going to go. And while I was waiting, I still, there was a lot of uncertainty around it. And then in January, I, we were celebrating my brother's ninth birthday at Disneyland and I received a phone call that my application had been scheduled for interview, which was the last thing that it needed. And the day before I flew out of California to come back to start the semester, I had my interview. And two weeks later, I found out it was approved. So I was granted my green card under President Obama's administration. And that in itself felt like a huge victory for me. <laughs> I know it's like kind of petty, and, but, that petty. Felt, but that felt like a really big victory for me. And so I am counting down the days. It is in my calendar for the day that I can apply to, for citizenship. It's three years from now or three years from January 11th. And I am very excited about that. And I am very excited about finally being able to be active in the political process that I've followed for so long. Mm -hmm. So no, my status was still uncertain in November, but it has now, it now has a lot more certainty to it. And you have the force of this entire community behind you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've, that's definitely been my experience these past few months. And so it's really great to be here. It's been really great to have you here today. I like to, um, I have to tell you that I was at the Women of Color event recently, and I felt a surge of my own gratitude for the Women of Color Collective. I have brown grandchildren, and they're girls. And I felt very moved at the thought of the fact that there is this collective of women in the world just making changes and that we make changes in small incremental ways. So I not only thank you as part of the community, but as part of women and part of the sisterhood of, of change makers. That feels really important for me to tell you that personally. We end this podcast generally by asking you what uh, advice would you give your baby selves, um, yourself, what advice would you give yourself when you first entered law school? For you, Alina, that would be, again, just a few years ago. Yeah, so I think the advice I would give myself in law school is the advice that I give women of color whom I meet and teach today, which is to be brave and to not self-select out. We get a lot of messaging, intentional and unintentional messaging uh, throughout institutions, throughout the public sphere about 
the types of people who are deserving of opportunities, the types of people who should speak out in a room about something that they feel is not right. And those kinds of images point generally towards older white men and the people who have traditionally been in power in this country for, for generations. And so I've often found, and I know this from my own experience struggling through it, that we often internalize that messaging and we make choices about whether we're going to speak up, whether it's in a classroom, whether it's in a courtroom, uh, whether it's speaking a very uncomfortable truth to people who are powerful, whether that should be us uh, making those choices. We make decisions about whether we apply for prestigious schools, prestigious opportunities based on that kind of messaging, whether we can imagine ourselves in a space where we're really putting ourselves out there. So I always encourage all of my students to, to not self-select out that it's because of all of the oppression against women of color that we should be putting ourselves in a position where we can speak truth to power, to take advantage of the opportunities that are out there to decide to come to an amazing law school like NYU and then decide to pursue all of the dreams that you might have despite all of the the imagery that is out there and that has managed to seep into our subconscious. So I encourage people to, to do that and to really, you know, it's always an individual choice when it comes to being willing to share your story, to be your authentic self and to share that with the world. But I've, I've just found it so powerful in my own life when I've made those choices that even though, you know, I came to law school not knowing what it really meant to be in law school or to be a lawyer, that I, you know, didn't know, like never anticipated becoming a law professor. These weren't things that I necessarily had models for in my own life, that when I was encouraged and supported to make choices, even though I, I'm not the image of the, you know, male white lawyer pounding his fists on a desk and, and shouting at a judge in this kind of aggressive stance of what we view lawyers to be on TV, that, that those kinds of images, even though those weren't me, that I could be the most powerful lawyer, that I could be using my own skills and my abilities and my truth and my background uh, so I, I tell students that they should, and I would tell myself, my younger self, to, to be brave, to take those chances, to never self-select out, and to, you know, to just understand that it's going to be a challenge. When I was a clinic student in the immigrant rights clinic filing my first federal court brief in a case for my client, and I remember running to... Uh, the Eastern District to get it in uh, under before the filing deadline. And as I was rushing into the courtroom, the security guard uh, looked at me and said, the naturalization ceremony is that way. And, oh, my stars and garters. Yeah, and I, I knew then, it wasn't a surprise, because I think women of color face this their entire lives. You're, you're never expected to be in a role of, of being a law student or a lawyer filing a court case. You're not expected 
to be the lawyer when you show up in court with, with your clients. Uh, you're not expected to be a professor. Um, and so there are a lot of times we have to push ourselves to know that, that we belong here mm-hmm. and that our existence is really changing people's minds. And so, you know, when I see rising stars like Claudia and I know that she is going to be the face of the legal profession, that she has made very tough choices to not self-select out of this process despite every force in our society making it so hard for women of color to succeed, um, to see her success. I am very hopeful, but by the time that my daughter is going to college and making decisions about what she wants to do with her life, those images will start to change, and she will see people like Claudia, like you know, so many incredible women of color at our law school who by that time are going to continue and be on to doing amazing things in leadership in this country. Those will be her models and the kind of questions, those internal questions that are in our minds that, that make us question whether we should be here, that those won't even occur to her. So that's, that's my hope and that's the advice that I give to young women who I meet because I see myself in them, um, and I know it's important for us to step forward. Was there a turning point for you? I know that we are, in fact, surrounded by those table thumping. You know, I mean, it's not an insult against anybody, really, to say that. Uh, that we, but we are kind of surrounded by those bellicose, straight white guys who are really tough. Um, but you told me once that you were kind of the shy, quiet law student. Yes. No, in law school, I rarely volunteered in the classroom. I found it incredibly intimidating. I learned later on that, you know, my thought process is one that a lot of people, particularly women, people of color have, and that you want to perfect your comment, your statement before you open your mouth because you haven't had the privileges of just thinking aloud and, and being challenged um, in that kind of setting and feeling like that's okay. You often feel like you're speaking for every woman in the room or every person of color in the room, so you want to think really carefully, and then that's not the way a lot of law school classrooms are set up to allow that kind of participation. So I was not the type of person who came in and wanted to you know, share my thoughts with a hundred of my <laughs> closest new friends and, and a professor who I may have found intimidating by their brilliance. It, it just, it wasn't me. And it really took a lot of work for me to feel comfortable sharing my views, speaking out. And I do that now with an appreciation that that thought process, that, that approach to participating in the legal profession is actually an asset that being careful, being thoughtful, not being the person to pound your fists on the table necessarily, although that that can be needed sometimes too, is just a different style of lawyering, and it's something that we should value just as much as any other style. And uh, so when I, I meet students who I who are like me in some ways, you know, obviously I work with many wonderful students who are, you know, very vocal and willing to, to be that person to kind of think aloud, puzzle things through, and that's wonderful. But when I meet students who, you know, tell me, well, I'm, I'm more quiet, I'm more shy, I'm, I, you know, want to, to practice an argument, you know, 10 million times before I go up in the court, I tell them, that's what's going to make you a better lawyer. You're going to be prepared, you're going to be thoughtful. 
and most importantly, um, that you will be connected to your clients and your community in a way that is really unique and irreplaceable. So the fact that you know a lot of people, you know myself included, may not be uh, made in the mold of what we have traditionally thought of as as a lawyer or as other leaders, judges and such in the legal profession. I think the fact that we are rising up into these positions is actually a very good thing for our profession um, that we add to the diversity in every sense of the word. And you know, those kinds of things can be can be assets. And again, that's I tell that to students all the time that if you look around the room and you start to question whether you're supposed to be here because you don't fit that mold, um, it's all the more reason why you should be here because that's the kind of thoughtfulness, the different learning styles, different ways of connecting with people um, that make you an incredible advocate for your clients, uh, an amazing listener, somebody who's who's able to, to really form that connection and advocate for people in a way that's incredibly powerful. So it takes all kinds in this profession, and I can say from my own personal experience that it's important for those of us who may seem a little different from, from the, the traditional mold to um, really value those differences and not try and, and change ourselves to um, fit a, a mold that may be becoming increasingly obsolete. Alina, I didn't really, I don't even know if I still fully internalized that lesson for myself. Um, I'm actually getting kind of creaky and I don't know that I fully claimed it. And that really understand that who I am is who I am and that there is a gift in that. Do you have a sense of that turning point for yourself where you claimed the gift of who you are? that that is the most valuable asset that you bring to the world? Well, I think it's a process for all of us. I question myself all the time. Um, and I think there's a very common framing, which has lots of different terms and phrases. But, uh, you know, the way I've heard it is the imposter theory, where you kind of see yourself in a room and you think, oh, you know, I don't belong here with the other people around me. So it's always a process of questioning and trying to reassure yourself that you're in the right place and that you're doing um, the right things. But I, I think for me, I really gather strength, you know, from my own family, um, from the incredible students I work with, and then, of course, the amazing women of color, among others, um, the women of color that I've represented. You know, when you sit in a, you know, detention center in a jail in a prison with a woman and you are planning out how to defend them in a terrible case that where you know our government wants to deport them and you're planning out all these legal questions but you're also you know speaking with the woman from the heart about her plans for her kids and how they're going to get through this when you when you see the kind of things that we are expected to normalize in this legal system and you see how amazing women of color have you know struggled through that process and how they come out more resilient than ever 
and do things that no one should have to do and live through experiences no one should have to live through, it makes all of the kind of internal questioning and, and concerns that we might have seem very petty and that we have to put those aside and get the job done. So for me, it's, it's not a turning point um, specifically. It's, it's a million small turning points where you start mm-hmm. to feel like you're veering off course or questioning yourself. And then you meet someone who reminds you that it's important to stay the course, um, not only for yourself, but for them and um, for all of the people that we're trying to help. It's a bigger picture issue. Yeah. I love it. Claudia, you're halfway through law school. Yes. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, anything you would tell yourself at the beginning of law school if you're looking back? I, I would tell myself to, I would tell myself that I know very little about the law and to come into law school with that in mind so that I can be open to different things. I knew that I was working towards becoming an attorney, but I had a very narrow idea of what an attorney was and what my role in that in that field was. And so knowing that you know, attorneys change careers and they change jobs and there's all these endless opportunities for us out there and now being very excited about exploring a lot of different things. I wish I would have known that before I started law school. I think it would have really changed my experience in the way I look at things. Um, so yeah, I think I would, I would tell my 1L self on the first day of school that I there's a lot for me out there that I don't even yet know about. One of my dear friends and a graduate of this law school, uh, Mira Demel, always said, life is long and our law school reminds us that this degree is very flexible. And so keep that in mind. It sounds like that you're already seized with that idea. So I love that. Yes. Um, and I love you both for being willing to join in this conversation so authentically and vulnerably today. So. Thank you for being here. Thank you. For more information about the Women's Leadership Network at NYU School of Law, and to access more episodes in this series, please visit us online at law.nyu.edu slash women's leadership. Thank you.